Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash WVF. This activity is supported by an educational grant from UCB. Welcome to this Peer Voice on Demand activity based on a recent event. This video based activity comprises three presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. I'd like to welcome you uh, to this independent medical education uh, program. Uh, and here today, we're going to talk a little bit about managing generalized myasthenia gravis. And you're going to hear two tales. Uh, one tale told by Professor Howard and another tale told by Professor Hines. And so let's, uh, without further ado, get into this. I'm uh, Pushpa Narayanaswamy. Um, I'm Associate Professor of Neurology at the Harvard Medical School. I'm a neuromuscular neurologist. I'm a Vice Chair for Clinical Operations at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I have a, uh, an interest in myasthenia gravis, mostly clinical research. I'm joined today by Professor Heinz Weindel uh, from Münster University uh, in Germany. He was un unfortunately unable to be here in person, um, but he's here with us um, online or virtually. Uh, and our uh, other faculty is Professor Howard. Um, I, don't, I don't think he needs any introduction. Uh, anybody who says the word myasthenia gravis or sneezes myasthenia gravis knows who Chip is. Uh, he's from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine. And we don't need to even talk about his expertise in myasthenia gravis. Um, having introduced our faculty, okay, these are our disclosures. These are our learning objectives for the talk. And then let's talk briefly about why we are here this morning. Why do we need new treatments uh, for myasthenia gravis? And I always think that uh, the past informs the future. So let's look at how patients with myasthenia gravis have historically done over the years. This um, paper here, uh, this uh, figure is from a paper that was published in Muscle and Nerve a few years ago, I believe 2008 or so. And this really looks at about 1,700-odd patients with generalized myasthenia gravis over a very long period of time. And, looks, and this particular chart shows you what happened to those uh, uh, people. Uh, you'll see here on the uh, left axis the mortality, and on the right axis the prevalence of myasthenia gravis. And you'll see between the 1900s and the 2000s, so this study went on up to the 2000s, so it just stopped at 2000, I believe. You'll see the, the blue line where the um, mortality in myasthenia gravis fell rapidly over that time period from almost 100% to less than 10%. And you will see all of those important uh, events that occurred along this time that caused this decrease in mortality, improvement in treatments, tracheostomy, ventilatory devices, etc., etc. And at the same time, you can imagine if mortality falls, the prevalence increases. But I also think prevalence increased because of other issues, including uh, better methods of diagnosis, etc. And we have some data that suggests that the actual prevalence may be increasing uh, yeah, more recently. What happened? Uh, okay, so this is the same paper. Despite all of this, the prevalence increasing, the mortality decreasing, we are not doing such a great job with these patients. And I will draw your attention uh, to the light blue lines uh, or bars where uh, the, these are patients who remitted. So in terms of remission, we are doing a good job. Uh, in the 1940s to 1957 onwards, we, saw, we see that there's about 30% of patients who go into remission, who went into remission. However, by the 2000s, that number almost doubled. So we're doing really quite well for that. How about mortality? That's the last bar, sort of the grayish bar. The mortality has fallen from 30% to about 10%. So we're doing reasonably well there, and we saw that in the previous graph. 
But look at the graphs with the stars there. That greenish graph, the first bar, uh, you'll see that the number of patients uh, who remained unchanged, um, I believe that's, um, uh, yeah, that's unchanged, remains about the same. And the, uh, the number of uh, people who go into remission remains the same. So we, we cause them to improve, uh, we cause them not to die, but there are many patients who remain unchanged, and the number of patients who go into remission remains about the same. So obviously we have ways to go to help these people. What about after 2000? This is a paper that was published in Neurology last year. This is an Austrian study of two, from two centers. Uh, less patients, 199 patients. This graph is called an alluvial graph. Uh, and if you I, will look at the colors here, the blue are ocular myasthenia gravis. And these were patients who were diagnosed in 2000 and followed out every year for 10 years. About 60% of them uh, became almost asymptomatic at the end of that period. But you will see here the orange graph, the orange bar, color in the bar, represent, represents people who are symptomatic from the disease, various degrees of symptomatic and generalized symptoms, not just ocular symptoms. You'll see that by the end of the first year, about 50-odd percent of them become green, go into the green area, and that is these are asymptomatic people. By the second year, that number goes up to about 58%, and like I said, by 10 years, it goes up to 63%. But you'll see these wavy lines between zones. It goes from color to color. So you'll see the lines going from orange to green, those are getting better, but you'll also see lines going from green to blue and green to orange. And so those are patients who are fluctuating between disease states over the years. And in this study, they found that about 23%, so almost a quarter of these patients went from asymptomatic to some degree of symptomatic during their 10-year period, and anywhere from 11 to 17% had relapses every year. So again, despite the fact that we get them to being asymptomatic early on, we can't be complacent. We have to sort of watch these people and see how they do. So I hope I've convinced you to some extent that we do need uh, some better treatments for our patients with myasthenia gravis. And um, I'll now turn it over uh, to uh, Professor Heinz Wiendel uh, to talk to us about the pathogenesis of myasthenia gravis and how to link, in terms of the pathogenesis, to link these newer therapeutic strategies and why we may need more than one therapeutic strategy. Thanks, Pushpa. Um... Happy to start with my talk on the pathogenic contributions in myasthenia gravis and why more than one therapeutic approach is needed. Um, I'm going directly into the depths, um, showing you a pathogenetic cartoon on what's going on in myasthenia gravis. So if you're looking here, you're seeing the key events that we very well understand and uh, how a antibody-dominated response is tackling the neuromuscular junction uh, by tackling expressed key antigens, mainly acetylcholine receptor, but maybe also others, um, MASK or LARP4, or yet unknown antigenic structures. And what's happening is um, here highlighted in 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's binding, it's modulation, it's blockade, it's clustering. And what happens is functional blockade, but also structural damage, irreversible or partly irreversible. Um, what are we aiming for? First of all, we're trying to fully or nearly fully rem bring the disease into a remission. We could call it pharmacological, but maybe also immunological remission. That means absence of myasthenic symptoms and signs while the patient is on therapy. And the choice of therapy is is influenced by uh, what the patient brings on the table in terms of comorbidities and initial presentation, but also what we have in terms of algorithms. 
Uh, we have a couple of limitations that will go through that, um, particularly for uncontrolled disease. Uncontrolled means um, not really bringing this patient into a stable situation of no worsenings, no fluctuations, no crisis. I'll go through that in a second. So what are we really aiming for? I think um, we could agree on that the best situation would be an immunological control of the disease that is accompanied by a clinical uh, complete control that is represented by a freedom of worsening, freedom of crisis, freedom of newly occurring symptoms and freedom of fluctuating symptoms. And we could call this combination a freedom of disease activity which in a way is the minimization or eradication of clinical manifestations. How do we measure that? Um, there is uh, different scores and scales, either being physician assessed or patient reported. QMG, quantitative myasthenia gravis scale is very often used. MGADL is extremely often used and the most often used nowadays endpoint in clinical trials. Minimal disease activity status, antibody status, um, we don't have to expect that we can eradicate antibodies with the current therapies. And then we have complement status and uh, functionality of neuromuscular symptoms um, uh, at the synapse. A wishful thinking where we could, in a way, measure the functional consequences that are currently happening in a given patient. When you look through the current management options going from top to bottom, you see how the mother of neuroimmunological diseases developed over the last years. Um, first of all, we didn't have that much therapeutic innovations over many, many years, which is now dramatically changing for the, for the, for the good thing. Um, it's really uh, providing new options, but also it's providing um, opportunities and rethinkings of the therapeutic algorithm. Going from top to bottom, we started and are still very broadly influenced by things that could be considered immunosuppression, corticosteroids and non-steroid immunosuppressants. That's the mainstay of treatment nowadays, um, accompanied by some sort of immunomodulatory activities, thymectomy, plasma exchange immunoglobulin, and the lower four is more specific and selective towards myasthenia pathology, particularly pointing out two groups of um, and classes of interferences, complement inhibition and FCRN blockers that are clearly more selective and specific towards the therapy and bring on some features on the table that will help to develop the therapeutic algorithm. This is work in progress, but I wanted to bring it here because it shows you that the development of guidelines is also influenced by two lines of thinking. Not only that we have newer options available more and more in myasthenia therapy, but also that we should be able to bring those options earlier and more patient tailored into the um, treatment algorithm. And what you can see here is uh, you're looking at disease modification in acetylcholine receptor antibody-positive uh, patients as opposed to mask antibody positives. And uh, the attempt here is to distinguish between patients that have mild and moderate disease and the uh, working group that is developing that, uh, which I happen to be um, um, the, the, the coordinator tries to operationalize also definitions, what is mild and moderate and what is highly and highest disease activity and what is a refractory disease activity. Um, but that is something that is a transient snapshot. That is nothing that is permanently your condition that can change, but it should allow you the possibility to use and exploit also the more modern therapeutic options that you can see here, ecolizumab, efcartigimod, CD20 antibodies, plus minus thymectomy, um, more early and more patient tailored. 
I already mentioned that you could roughly look at myasthenia in three groups, generalized myasthenia, acetylcholine receptor positive, mass positive, and seronegative. There is two main differences that are worth highlighting. First of all, the relevance and evidence for the, the benefit of thymectomy. Acetylcholine receptor antibody positives um, um, are clearly showing a benefit of thymectomy with regard to saving steroids later on. Uh, for musk, that is not the case, and for seronegative, that is less well studied. The other thing is that the type of antibodies that is um, driving pathology is not triggering complement uh, cascade in mask antibodies. That means that from a pathogenetic view, um, there is no need and no, um, no sensible role of um, complement inhibition in those, in those mask positive patients. Um, I'm a trained immunologist, so I'm very interested in the modes of action, but I do think that mode of action knowledge is extremely important also in arguing and informing your patient on what is to be expected in terms of what your treatments will do. And if you go from upper left to upper right, you can see that um, uh, the, 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 the thymectomy, the B-cell depleting antibodies are really more towards the originating uh, educational steps, uh, instruction steps in MG pathogenesis as opposed to very symptomatic end stage or end cascade interference with symptomatic treatments such as acetylcholine receptor inhibition. The next slides are making one key point. We are at present not really good enough in our myasthenia management to bring patients into full remission or in the status of best possible disease control. This is data from the Dutch-Belgian registry uh, showing on um, signs and symptoms on the neuromuscular junction in the past three months. And what you can see is that under the given treatments, uh, up to nearly 80% still had generalized symptoms within the first six months of the disease course. Uh, disease control can be considered uh, based on patient-reported severity scales, unsatisfactory uh, in nearly 50%, um, working inhibiting in nearly um, two-thirds, and not being in remission in 75%, and the failure to achieve complete remission also in a neurology neurologist-driven registry shows to be up to 80%. So that is far away from what I just reported in the beginning we would like to achieve. And same is true for more robust events in terms of MG-related hospitalizations, exacerbation and myasthenic grievous um, diseases, um, crisis, which you see in up to 40% still under the given therapeutic landscape. Um, the other thing is onset of action in trajectory to safety profile. Um, when you look here on this slide, the way how it's done is um, from being rather fast onset to delayed onset from left to right and from top to bottom, how well the evidences are in terms of um, available randomized controlled trials, you do see that we are, of course, living very well with pyridostigmine, plasma exchange, prednisone. But the problem that prednisone is, 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 is fairly good to manage many of our patients, but fairly bad in terms of doing that on the long run. So we would like to evade um, long-term use of steroids and to reduce the steroids as best as we can. Um, as opposed to the broad use of long-term immunosuppression um, and also the precision towards the patient symptoms and signs at a given condition. There is innovations, and I was mentioning that, and you will hear about that in more detail from Chip in a second. Um, two key groups of innovations have already reached approval, and one is the FCRN blocker, and the other is the complement targeting therapeutics. Complement, I mentioned, is one of the key pathogenic effector cascades, 
um, in acetylcholine receptor antibody positive um, patients. There is now three main treatments either already approved or in the approval process, ecolizumab, ravolizumab, and silucoplan. Uh, on the left side, that's two antibodies. On the other side, that's a small molecule. They're all doing um, what complement inhibition makes it worthwhile in myasthenia. They are blocking the membrane attack complex to happen, to be configured, and that actually reduces very efficiently uh, effector destruction in myasthenia. FCRN are working differently. Um, they are exploiting the fact that um, immunoglobulins maintain their half-life based on a recycling pathway. And this recycling pathway is very depending on FCRN, that's FC receptor. And if you modulate that, and this is on the right side, the compounds that are either in development for myasthenia gravis or already approved, F-cartigimod is approved, um, they are eliminating or reducing this recycling pathway and thereby uh, reducing the amount and the quantity of um, immunoglobulins very significantly up to 70%. Um, first kit on the block is now approved in the US and about to be approved also in EU. That's F-cortigimod. And that will also be a game changer in terms of what we're doing um, in approaching more selectively and specifically myasthenia pathology. This very um, important review series uh, spearheaded by Jan Verschuren in Lancet Neurology shows you also the two ways how you can look at the therapeutic developments. Um, on one side, how quickly the onset of action is, and here particularly the new classes of FCRN modulators and complement inhibitors by the mode of action should have a very fast onset of action, as opposed to treatments with longer term onset of clinical effects, one to six months, but maybe also longer. And here I'm talking about B-cell depletion, but also other ways of B-cell targeting, but also more modern, you could say, or different types of immunosuppressants and intracellular, um, intracellular proliferation pathway um, modulations. Let me close my talk with summarizing some of the most important statements. So first of all, what goals do we follow in MG management? And I think best possible disease control with best possible quality of life, which is, as I showed, not always achieved and in, uh, in a surprising high percentage not achieved in current management. The other is priorities for improving disease that is not controlled. And I'm considering the extreme form of best possible disease control, freedom of disease. And that is including the need of reducing corticosteroids to develop marker that reliably help us in predicting worsenings events and exacerbations and to develop a targeted and a more precise um, generalized myasthenia therapy with better and lower side effect profiles. Thank you, Heinz. That was great. Um, I think you set the stage for uh, Professor Howard's presentation. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned uh, through this talk was sort of the goals of care and how the needle has moved. In the international consensus, we did talk about this. We said it's not just important to get disease control, and there we defined it as minimal manifestations or better but also sort of pay attention to the side effect profile, and we've had some definitions. So I think even after that, uh, even with that goal that we defined, with the advent of these newer targeted therapies, that needle is moving, um, uh, looking at uh, various aspects of goals of care. Um, I'd like to invite uh, Professor Howard to tell us a little bit about how these two targets that uh, uh, Professor uh, Windle talked about in terms of complement and FCRN can be used uh, in, in uh, treating myasthenia gravis. Professor Howard. Thank you, Pushpa. Thank you, Heinz. And good morning to everyone. Good morning to our virtual audience out there. And uh, you're hearing a theme. We do a good job 
And as Carolina Barnett's editorial of uh, last October uh, said, uh, are we really helping people? And I think you're hearing that the adverse event profiles, the lack of our ability to achieve minimal manifestation or freedom of disease is sorely lacking. And, and so I think there is a true need for additional therapies, targeted therapies, rapid onset of action, uh, focal effects uh, on the host in order to improve these qualities. And so we all know that MG is, a, is an antibody-mediated disorder, complement uh, uh, destruction occurring at the neuromuscular junction in many of the subtypes. Um, and this disease burden is the underlying theme. And I also add to it the treatment burden of disease. And I think that's just as important as the weakness that our patients experience, uh, the unemployment that occurs, uh, the adverse event profiles and additional health care costs. And it's for that reason that these targeted therapies become uh, critical. We're going to take a deep dive into the two classes that Heinz talked about, complement inhibition, FCRN inhibition, and I'm going to show and share with you what data we have that support its use in myasthenia. We're going to review uh, the, some of the phase three trials that have been completed, uh, and some have been published, and some are, are just completed, and give you a sense of what we're going to be able to do uh, for the future, because I think our treatment paradigms are going to change radically over the next 10 years. And so let's start with complement inhibition, and we'll begin with the REGAIN study, because that was the first. Uh, it started, that whole program started in 2007 uh, when we approached uh, Alexion to see whether complement inhibition would work. And following the phase two trial, uh, the phase three trial was uh, uh, implemented. And so uh, patients randomized one-to-one, -one, remaining on standard of care and being vaccinated against meningococcus. Uh, and this is an absolute necessity with any complement inhibitor because the inhibition of complement increases the risk of an encapsulated bacterial infection, meningococcal meningitis being the most potentially uh, severe. Um, and so randomized one-to-one -one through a blinded portion, 26 weeks, uh, using the MGADL score as the primary endpoint as mandated by uh, the U.S. Uh, FDA. And those who completed that then rolled over into an open-label extension, uh, as you see, that went on for some 200-plus weeks uh, and um, resulted ultimately in, in its publication and approval, though the actual trial itself failed uh, based on the primary endpoint. And it failed because of the statistical methodology used worst rank analysis, also mandated by uh, the regulatory agencies. And if one re-looks at the data using other kinds of statistical analyses, it was highly significant. And what saved this study, uh, and I think ultimately led to the approval of the first complement inhibitor, was the fact that 18 of the 22 pre-specified statistical outcomes were highly supportive of drug effect. And so what I'm showing you here uh, in the upper left uh, to the vertical uh, dashed line is the blinded phase and then the rollover uh, into the open label. And one sees placebo response in gray, active drug in blue. And we see a very rapid, robust improvement in the MGADL score, much faster than any of our current therapeutics uh, that we use. Uh, azathioprine, mycophenolate, cyclophilins, uh, et cetera. Yes, our nemesis is there, and one sees a substantial placebo response. And in some trials, it's as high as 60-plus percent. Uh, and there are multiple reasons for that, but we have to live with it. We have to power studies to account for that. Uh, so rapid, robust, sustained improvement with complement inhibition. And then at the rollover point, which was a blinded rollover so we wouldn't uh, break the blind, one sees that the placebo arm in gray virtually mimics the active drug arm that we saw at the start. It, too, has a rapid, robust response 
we've already taken out the placebo response. So I submit to you this is true drug response. Uh, and then the two arms are parallel uh, on ECU for the rest of the uh, rest of the trial uh, there. This to me is even more important, and this is just taking the data, repositioning it, if you will, and then looking at those individuals who achieve minimal manifestation, which means in the term of the investigator or the clinician, there is no functional weakness on the part of the patient. And one sees in green the active drug arm, in gray is the placebo response, the horizontal dashed line represents below that the, the blinded portion of the trial, and then above that the open label. And so by the end of the initial 26 weeks, some 60% of patients improve, and then through the open label phase, that number increases to around 85%. And similarly, those who transition from placebo to active drug they too achieve substantial improvement as shown on the left-hand part of this in green. But what is critically or interesting is that those in blue, and these are those who achieve minimal manifestations, 26% uh, versus 14 at the end of the blinded phase, but well over 60%, uh, 55% by the end of 130 weeks. Uh, remember, these are patients who were, quote, in the term, and I apologize for ever thinking about using this term, refractory, because patients with MG aren't truly refractory, they're just poorly responsive. So refractory is a bad term, but by definition had failed multiple therapeutic attempts or were dependent on IVIG or plasma exchange. And look at the numbers that ultimately achieve minimal manifestations over time. We're doing something to the neuromuscular junction. Are we remodeling it? Are we creating new post-junctional folds? We have no data to support this. It's a huge data gap. <clears throat> but something is going on there with the use of complement inhibition to protect the attack from the membrane attack complex. And so this is very telling. And like I tell my trainees, for every question you ask and get data, you then ask four more or five more new questions. And for the young investigators, young clinicians out there, one can make a career studying these new novel mechanisms um, and just come talk to various folks and we'll help guide you on your way. But what else can we do for these individuals? On the left, we look at exacerbations. In the middle, we look at uh, MG-related hospitalizations. And then during the trial, the, the need for rescue therapy. In each instance, uh, we see substantial improvement there in what I call Carolina blue. Uh, and very light blue on the left is the one year before trial entry. And, and then the uh, relative to placebo versus in gray, but substantial improvement in reductions in his disease exacerbation, reductions in MG hospitalizations, and the need for rescue therapy with complement inhibition. From a safety perspective, it's fairly nominal. And yes, uh, meningeal men meningitis lurks, and the fact that one is vaccinated. Uh, based on country standards in the U.S., we use both the quadrivalent as well as the B-serotype vaccination. And there are method all or there are standards by which how often they're administered. Uh, if one cannot do that because of an urgent use, one must treat with antibiotics. Um, but uh, through vaccination, through education of the patient for warning symptoms, giving them wallet cards, identifying that they're taking these drugs, become critical elements of your management uh, strategy. The risk is not zero in cases of meningococcal infection are reported, um, successfully uh, treated in the vast majority of instances. Uh, and so despite that specter of potential uh, difficulty, we all believe that this is truly an efficacious uh, approach uh, to treat diseases. But the other adverse events are pretty mild and very similar, whether it be in placebo arm or active drug arm, uh, and most commonly headache, some nausea, some diarrhea, uh, some individuals had low back pain, um, but fairly nominal 
throughout uh, the course of the trials and even in the post-marketing analysis uh, that we have. As a result of that regain study, other trials with complement inhibitors uh, went into play, and one was the Champion MG study with ravaluzumab. And ravaluzumab is actually eculizumab that's been re-engineered uh, to go from an every two-week infusion cycle to an every eight-week infusion uh, cycle. Uh, this drug, too, was recently approved by the US FDA um, and, and others in very similar paradigm. Standard of care, uh, randomized one-to-one -one following vaccination. But unlike the REGAIN study, which looked at this group of patients that had failed everything, this study and other complement studies in play uh, are accepting all patients. One need not to have failed therapies. That definition was removed. And so the results, uh, one can't really compare apples to oranges, but there are uh, similarities. Um, and so following uh, 26 weeks, they were then rolled over into an open-label extension. Uh, and then let's look at this uh, results. And here's the primary endpoint, again, the MG activities of daily living score. And on the left, it's displayed uh, longitudinally over time. And one sees a fairly rapid uh, drop. And remember that the time scale is different than the previous graph that I showed you, where it was very compressed. But this is a very rapid, robust response uh, with the active drug in green and the placebo arm uh, in the dashed line that then was sustained over time. When one looks at the, uh, the numbers of patients achieving various changes in ADL scores on the right-hand side in the graphic, two-point change, four-point change, eight-point change, et cetera, you see that in every instance there's favorability to active drug versus placebo. And the percentages are listed there. The safety outcomes, there were no new safety signals. Um, much the same in terms of the adverse event profiles. The overwhelming majority of adverse events were class one, class two, which is mild or moderate. Uh, and uh, again, uh, headache and diarrhea and nausea sort of led the list and um, in some instances were actually more common in the placebo arm than in the, uh, the active drug arm. This is not to minimize the fact that there are not side effects, but I think you're seeing that the AE profiles of these targeted therapies are going to be much better uh, than our corticosteroids, our azathioprines, our mycophenolates, uh, etc. And then let's talk about Xylucoplan. Uh, this is a different drug. Uh, this is not a full-size monoclonal antibody. Uh, this is a macrocyclic peptide, a small fragment. Uh, it not only targets C5, which the first two compounds do, but it also targets C6. And so we have a dual mechanism, if you will. Um, this timeline, this course, was much the same. Uh, took all comers, if you will, on standard of care, following vaccination and randomized one-to-one, -one, um, and followed for 12 weeks. And we made the decision to shorten the interval based on what we saw in the REGAIN trial. Um, and uh, the primary endpoint, again, uh, was uh, the MGADL score. This trial is a little bit more difficult to get into because in addition to having to meet an ADL requirement, we also had to meet a quantified myasthenia gravis QMG score component uh, as well. And so perhaps a little bit sicker population, maybe not. Um, and then they were followed uh, over time, rolled over into an open label, and that trial is still ongoing uh, at this moment. Uh, the dose was based on our phase two trial in which we looked at two doses, 0.1 versus 0.3, and we found that 0.1 also inhibited complements substantially, but this dose did a better job, and so this is why we chose this particular dose uh, for this compound. With the uh, regain trial, et cetera, the initial dose 
was based on what was used in PNH in a typical uh, AHUS, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. I just bungled that one. Um, but uh, we transferred those uh, dosages over. Actually, from phase two to phase three, we increased the dose uh, a little bit based on data and other disease entities. Um, but you see a very similar curve, a very rapid, robust drop again here in the MGADL score uh, that then becomes sustained. And so these compounds are working much faster than all the other stuff that we use, save perhaps uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, of course, which work on an hourly basis, and maybe corticosteroids. But even then, those are a little bit longer, I think, in onset to effect. Um, when we look at other outcome measures, QMG, quality of life, MG composite score, et cetera, we see very similar patterns uh, in what I'm showing you here and what I showed you with the other two compounds. So across all metrics, we're seeing high favorability uh, for active drug. Uh, this is what I call the Christmas tree plot, and we simply look at uh, this responder analysis and look at the, the degree of change uh, in the primary endpoint here, the MGADL score, and a two-point change in the literature is considered meaningful, but what if we increase the stringency? How many have a four-point change? How many have an eight-point change? How many have a 12-point change? And the green is active drug, the gray on the right is, uh, is placebo, and in each instance you see this shift in favor of active drug. Now when you look at the root ball below, those uh, three lines, four lines below uh, the, uh, uh, the axis, one sees that it favors placebo. And this is what we would anticipate, that those who don't respond, those who get worse, et cetera, would be much more common in the placebo arm. The safety concerns are quite similar to what we saw in the others, uh, headache, uh, diarrhea tended to leave the list, uh, lead the list. Uh, the total AE event profiles were similar in both arms. Similarly, slightly more serious uh, treatment emergent AEs in, in the placebo arm. Uh, like any trial, there are dropouts. In this particular case, uh, they were unrelated to active drug. There were deaths. Uh, and one was a cerebral hemorrhage in the placebo arm, and then there were COVID-related deaths because uh, these last two trials were run during uh, the pandemic and very successfully based on all the efforts of the team. So let's switch and talk about FCRN inhibitors. Uh, and Heinz has set the stage. The one product that is out and approved is Efgartigamod. Uh, this was a very unique study in that uh, it was not dosed continuously. Dosing was cyclical. And for the first time in an MG study, we included patients who did not have antibodies to ACHR. So they could have been MUSK, they could have been LRP4, and they could have been triple negative. And they represented a small population. They were not part of the initial or the primary statistical analysis, but it allowed us to gain insight into uh, this population in terms of our therapeutics. As you've already heard, FCRN inhibitors, it's also called the Brambell receptor, and you know this based on any of you who've had children. It's the mechanism by which we transfer maternal antibody to the fetus during the last two months of pregnancy to give them an immune system. And then it was evolved uh, through the 90s with Sally Ward, and then ultimately into a commercial uh, product. And so the, the uh, treatment uh, design was that patients uh, were randomized one-to-one. -one. They were on standard of care, which was maintained, and they were given four weekly infusions of Fgartigamod and then observed. The primary endpoint was called an MGADL responder, defined as at least a two-point change, sustained for four consecutive weeks, and that improvement had to start within the first week following their last infusion. And then they could be retreated 
when they relapsed and they had to come back to within uh, two points of their original ADL score and then they were allowed retreatment. And through the course of the blinded phase, they could get about three uh, infusions or three courses of infusions if they were um, uh, sort of a worst case uh, scenario. And what I'm showing you here are those individuals uh, who have an ADL score in gray is the placebo and green is the active drug. And again, rapid, robust response that reaches its nadir approximately one week after their fourth infusion and then slowly returns to baseline. QOL, composite, QMG, etc., all follow a similar uh, response. Uh, and on the right, one sees again uh, the cumulative percentages and the degree of ADL change in all favoring green, which was active drug in this arm. IgG levels fell in parallel to this in all classes of IgG, one, two, three, and four. And so where Heinz told you that complement has no effect on musk because it's an IgG4 mediated disease, uh, FCRN inhibitor inhibitors will take out IgG4 and therefore has applicability in the musk population. Uh, safety concerns are here, again, very nominal. And I think this targeted approach is what's going to lead us to a marked reduction in adverse event profiles uh, and be very beneficial for our patients. So headaches, nasopharyngitis, some nausea, diarrhea, there is concern for the fact that we reduce IgG. What's the risk of infection? And the US FDA has made us put a labeling chain, a statement in there about this. And yes, uh, based on this, there are slightly more infections, urinary tract, et cetera, in the active drug arm. What we're seeing is that the incident rate per uh, year uh, over time is actually less in the open label uh, part of the trial. And so I'm not sure just how much of an infection response we have to be concerned about, and only time will tell us. So my caring MG was rosanaliximab. Uh, it's a, another FCRN inhibitor uh, run by Vera Brill. Uh, and here there were two dosing intervals. Uh, this is an IV infer a sub Q infusion, uh, and they were followed over time uh, and uh, then rolled over into an open label uh, part of the, uh, of the trial. And again, MGADL becomes your primary endpoint. And here's the change in MGADL over time, looking at the two dosing and slightly better um, uh, with the higher dose uh, over time. Uh, and again, demonstrating efficacy. And we're seeing changes in ADL score, the other metrics, IgG levels, excuse me, as well as the ACHR antibody. This trial was limited to those who had ACHR positive uh, disease. So the entry criteria for virtually all of these trials is very similar. The patient populations other than regain are very similar uh, as well. Uh, safety concerns, again, reflect what we've already talked about, and there are no new signals uh, here. Uh, severe emergent effects were very small in number, uh, well-tolerated, both classes of these drugs. And again, headache, uh, mild headache, uh, leads the list and often not even treated uh, by the patient. There are a number of other targets in, in development. We have uh, other uh, complement inhibitors with pozolizumab and semdisuran, uh, which actually targets C5 and also has an interfering RNA that's targeting C5 production in the liver. That trial is just underway. There are other uh, FCRN inhibitors that are under trial. Uh, Nipocalumab is looking at musk and LRP4 as well. Um, and uh, baticlumab only in ACHR positive. We have an anti-CD19 inhibitor, uh, which uh, we think will work better than rituximab because it's affecting a much broader uh, group of the B-cell population. Uh, an IL-6 inhibitor that's just starting under, getting underway, a BTK inhibitor that's just starting to get underway. And we also have CAR-T cell therapy coming, uh, not only for musk, 
but also for ACHR positive and ACHR negative uh, patients. Uh, that last one is interesting because it does not rely on DNA, but relies on RNA. And so <clears throat> the response is limited. There's not continued proliferation uh, of, the, of the cell, and therefore cytokine release syndromes and ICANs, the neurological complications, um, essentially disappear uh, is the theory. You know, again, time will tell. And so uh, we have new treatment options, and I think is going to radically change our approach. Uh, these will uh, uh, become tools that we'll use much earlier in the course of the game. And so I'll turn this back over to Pushpa. Thank you much. So let's turn over. I think uh, we have a few minutes left. So let's turn to a panel discussion. So this is the first question. How could the standard of care for myasthenia gravis evolve? Most people picked all of the above. And I, would, I see Chip nodding, so I think he agrees as well. Was that your choice as well, Chip? Heinz, what do you think? Absolutely. Also my choice. Yeah, yeah, and I think my choice as well. So any discussion on this, uh, Chip, Heinz? Yeah. So uh, we talked about, Heinz spoke about the clinical trial evidence in uh, older drugs, and I think one of the most powerful things is these uh, well-designed and well-executed randomized controlled trials for these new therapies that we now have. More, historically, much of the treatment of myasthenia gravis sort of came up from other rheumatological disorders, um, which is not the case here. The magic number of 79%, again, it's exactly the same number for all of the above. Um, I would agree, but um, is there some point that you start with? Obviously, all of these are important factors, but we've got to start at some point. So, uh, Chip, what point, what, which one of these factors do you use initially and then go down the algorithm? Well, <clears throat> I think to me it's uh, age and comorbidity because I hate prednisone with a passion. I only use it in my young populations, but antibody subtype clearly pushes me one way or the other. Sure. How about you, Heinz? What do you start with in your algorithm? I would, I would agree with Chip that, um, that, that age and comorbidity is really driving. Um, I'm mainly driven, and I thought I, I, I made a point also in my talk about that, by um, the treatment aim of best possible disease control at uh, ideally minimum downsides in terms of the adverse events. And, and this is why I'm um, very enthusiasmized by the new options, because they really enable us earlier to achieve this control in the absence of using heavy immunosuppressants and heavy uh, doses of corticosteroids. Um, sex, male versus female, does influence, um, but for the key purpose of uh, conflicting with family planning and pregnancy, my first take in, in managing my seniors that I'm talking with women of childbearing age to say that first let's get the water under the bridge and control the disease for let's see at least two years and then see how we move on with family planning. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. And I agree. I think that um, discussion at the very outset about uh, ch childbearing and uh, pregnancy is really important when we see our young women in practice. And to set that discussion in stage, oftentimes even get reproductive specialists involved fairly early on in the picture as we are working to control the disease um, so that they can go on to have um, uh, normal, healthy babies and carry them through pregnancy. Thymic status, of course, is important, especially in the setting of a thymoma, because the first thing you want to do is to treat the thymoma. But in order to do so, you want to get that myasthenia gravis well controlled quickly so that these patients can go on to have their surgery and have their thymoma removed. So um, we 
purposely didn't give you the all of the above response <laughs> option here. So, but it's true, isn't it? To some extent, all of the above uh, really do apply here. But yes, uh, I see 50% chose reimbursement and cost issues, and 41% chose this um, uh, really important factor that is uncertainty. I mean, we've got these therapies, and we've got to remember, I mean, in terms of studies across the board, about 60 to 70 percent of patients with myasthenia gravis do well with conventional therapies. We've got to remember that. So when do we choose these therapies? Why do we choose these therapies? So that is the other uh, question here. So any comments? Um, Heinz, let's uh, ask you first. Uh, where do you see these therapies fitting in the algorithm, and can you mention also a little bit about rescue therapies or uh, bridge therapies, as they're being uh, ref referred to now? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, any new approved drug has numerous questions that are unanswered by the um, evidences based on clinical trials. So I do think the, the, the one side would be challenges, the other is of course opportunities. And uh, what, I, what I think what we need, and that is a key problem at this point, is that we don't really have um, evidences for appropriate treatment sequences or treatment algorithms. We do have now novel therapeutic options, but we don't know really um, the patient scenarios where they would be applied. And I agree with what Chip has said, and I think you also mentioned that this will dramatically change how we approach myasthenia. And uh, while the first approved uh, product, Ecolizumab, uh, is really in a niche indication of refractory, a horrible term, uh, we are trying to bring in these new options earlier, patient-tailored. That's my point. Um, and I don't think that, uh, that, that, that those new therapeutic options are rescue options. I rather think they would be, um, unless it's really a mild, moderate, very, very standard uh, um, presentation, things as a first switch or for active or highly active patients. So that would be my approach. And uh, of course, we need um, both clinical trial evidence, but also real-world evidence from registries to inform us better about the um, effectiveness as opposed to the adverse events. In addition, of course, to uh, things like reimbursement issues, which I, I don't want to comment about, but that's certainly depending on the region and the prerequisites, how those drugs might be, might be reimbursed. Thank you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Chip, I think this uh, carries on the previous discussion, so this is for you. Do you consider the new therapeutic options as add-on therapies to corticosteroids and immunosuppressants? So again, this sort of speaks to the algorithmic approach and where we are going with these therapies. Yeah, I think we're going to see a culture change, and at the moment, most folks would use them as <clears throat> add-on therapies, but ultimately, I see these becoming primary therapies, uh, first line, uh, without question, because of the rapidity of the response, um, because of the improved adverse event profiles, um, and they will move up forward. There are hurdles that have to be um, overcome to get there uh, in terms of our thinking and management, in terms of reimbursement, et cetera, but no question, I believe, these novel therapeutics will be first-line therapies in 10, 15 years. Let me ask uh, uh, both Heinz and you, Chip, a related question. So in the, with these therapies, what we are doing is really sort of getting to the final common pathway of damage, if you will. You know, we are going to act the neuromuscular junction to what these antibodies are doing or just sort of removing the antibodies. What about the upstream pathology, you know, the, uh, where we start with myasthenia gravis, the B cells, the priming of the B cell, antigenic priming of the B cells. So where do you see that going? Because there are therapies that are, we spoke about CAR-T, you mentioned some of those therapies that are targeting those uh, areas as well. Do you think at some point we'll need those therapies as well in addition to these to get to the disease? Yeah, I think that the future in the MG world is very bright, and 
a firm and now has an interest in us, I think because they can pronounce and spell the word myasthenia. Um, but there is even talk of tolerization. Um, you know, it's, it still has to come to the clinical arena, um, but that might be the holy grail uh, if we can reboot and reset the immune system. Short of that, I think as we move upstream, we have to be conscious of what are the potential off-target effects. And that's always been my concern. Until we see the trial data and have experience, uh, it's, we need to do these, and we just have to keep an open mind. Heinz, do you have a comment as an immunologist? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, the holy grail of autoimmunology is, is tolerization, and there is maybe no better example to achieve that than myasthenia growth. But the, the truth is that we don't have any autoimmune disease where this holy grail has really been found. Um, but we have found so many other um, interferences and uh, immune modulations that work on the reestablishment of disturbed immune regulatory networks up to the point that even if you control the disease by controlling effector mechanisms, that might be really good enough. There might be an additional information that FCRN modulation does more than just reduce immunoglobulins. It has, and that comes from other diseases, impact on B-cell function and tolerization. So I agree with Chip that um, the, the future is very bright. I'm a bit more skeptical that the, the key, let's say, um, the, the, the key strategy will in five years be retolerization because that's really difficult. But what I believe is that the aim of disease control by combining different strategies that are re either upstream or more downstream will be um, will be will be the reality in the myasthenia field in the absence or in much less need for the classical broad old school immunosuppression and corticosteroids. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, and um, I think we are running out of time. So we are at the end of the session. Thank you all for attending. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.